verses 19 and 20. I'm reading uh, from the New King James Version of the Bible. Most of my scriptures will be from the New King James. It's what I use in my writing. Uh, it seems to jive better with my style of writing, so I usually use it when I'm teaching. Not, no issue with the regular King James, but I'll be reading mostly from the New King James. Uh, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Obviously, he's writing to Spirit-filled people. And whom you have from God, you have the Holy Spirit from God, and you are not your own. That's kind of a key statement there. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They are God's. And so the question I want to bring to you this morning just to kind of launch this is who owns you? In your mind, who owns you? In your way of living, who owns you? And uh, let me explain why I'm starting with this question. Uh, you know, when a person owns a house, the house is subject to the will of the owner, right? How many of you own a house? Now, I'm with the assistance of a bank, okay? I, I own my own home, but I have a mortgage, okay? So I'm still claiming ownership. The deed's in my name. So how many of you own a house? Raise your hand. Okay. So you know that you own the house, right? And so if you want to paint the house purple, uh, your neighbors may not like it, but you, you own the house. You get to decide what color to paint it. The house doesn't decide what color it's going to be. The owner does. And so, again, the question is who owns you? Okay, to whom do you belong? Now, the idea of redemption is uh, used a lot in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And uh, it was a very important concept in uh, ancient Hebrew society. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 25 and 29, it says, If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a year after it is sold. So the, the word redeem has a similar meaning to the word to buy or to purchase. So in other words, uh, but the implication is that you're, you're buying something back. It's something was yours, you sold it, and now you're redeeming it or you're buying it back. And um, this is how it's being used in this passage, obviously. Now, the concept of buying something back is also used with regard to buying back a person who's been sold into slavery. And so in Leviticus 25 and 47, it says, Now if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, so you, you're, you go broke and so you don't have any means to live, so you sell yourself to be a slave of a rich guy, and uh, he says, if, if, if somebody does that, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. And so this passage brings out the idea that probably most of you are familiar with of the kinsman redeemer. Okay, somebody related to you could buy back uh, the brother that's been sold into slavery. 
And this is a concept that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We often say he's our kinsman redeemer. He's our brother in the flesh. He's part of humanity, and yet he was our redeemer. He purchased us. And uh, this, this idea lets us know that every one of us at one time was a slave of sin. We all needed redemption. You might have grew up in church, but I'm, I'm sorry, you had to, still had to get saved at some point. And so the problem with slavery is a slave is not in position to free himself. He must be set free by someone who's not a slave. So God, because of his great love for us, he became our kinsman redeemer. He wrapped himself in human flesh. He redeemed us from the oppressive power of sin. And it's through the death of Christ on the cross that God himself redeemed us or bought us or purchased us. According to Paul, he purchased us with his own blood. That makes us pretty valuable. In fact, uh, Paul mentioned that to the uh, pastors in Ephesus. He said, Don't, you're pastor the, the flock of God, which, uh, by the way, he purchased with his own blood. Wow, what a responsibility that puts on pastors. We're, we're looking after very valuable people. Uh, Paul also says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And so we can't claim to be forgiven and not accept that we've been redeemed. In other words, if you're claiming forgiveness, that God has forgiven you, and that you uh, are no longer in your sins because of his forgiveness, you also have to accept that God owns you. You can't have one and not the other, all right? He redeemed us by his blood, and then he immediately says the forgiveness of sins. Those two concepts are inseparable. And so we can rejoice in this redemption. We should rejoice in it because we've been bought at a price. But, of course, the price was not money. No amount of cash could redeem us from sins. It wasn't diamonds. It wasn't precious metals. We were not redeemed with corruptible things, Peter says, like silver or gold from our aimless conduct received by tradition from our fathers, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, yes, it took the precious blood of Jesus Christ to redeem us from our sins so that we don't have to suffer in a devil's hell. Amen. How many are pretty happy about that? Yeah. I mean, hey, what a deal, huh? Now, let's think about this for a minute, what this means. Again, the question, to whom do you belong? Who owns you? And the correct answer is you belong to God. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Now, whenever a slave was redeemed, his connection with his previous owner was severed. He was no longer subject to the will of his previous owner. He was redeemed. He was released. The price was paid. He was set free. In the Old Testament, God said it was said to have redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. 
And so, for example, as the people of Israel were preparing to enter the promised land, Moses uh, reminded them, he said, you shall remember that you were a, a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. So Moses was telling the people that if God had not redeemed them from Egypt, they would still be slaves. Now, this may all sound kind of basic, but I'm laying a foundation here. Since it was God who redeemed them, that makes them God's own people. He owns them, right? They're no longer subject to the Pharaoh. They're no longer subject to the Egyptian slave masters. They're now subject to God. And so the fact that they're not subject to the Egyptians doesn't mean they're free to do whatever they want. It means now they're subject to God. We all are always going to have some kind of an authority over us in life. If you insist on absolute freedom, that means you're on your own, and uh, you'll, you'll have to become your own Savior. Now, um, once they were redeemed, they, it was then incumbent upon them to do what their new owner told them to do. And there, there was no, there's no middle ground here, okay? Uh, you're going to be a slave of somebody. Paul says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And I had, boy, that's the truth. When I was a slave of sin, I'd never even thought about righteousness. That was never even a, a part of my thinking and my decision-making. Okay, I was free in regard to righteousness, but now he says, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, the same word, no longer slaves of sin, but now slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. And we'll come back to that scripture later on. Now, we're either going to be a slave of sin or a slave of God. There is no third option. And uh, as Pentecostal people, we, uh, we like to shout about redemption. We like to praise the Lord over our salvation. Um, but we're not often quite as eager to be shouting and praising God uh, over the idea that we belong to him and he expects us to obey his commandments. Can you shout as much about obedience as you do at redemption? But you can't really separate them anyway. I mean, who owns us? Who are we subject to? Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you won't do the things I say? I, I bought you. But people want Jesus as their Savior but not as their Lord, right? And uh, that's the world we live in. But it doesn't work that way. It, can't, it will never work that way. You don't get to pick and choose. So let's think about exactly what the New Testament tells us we've, we've been redeemed from. Okay, Galatians 3.13 says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And that's so that we can receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that's something we're sh shouting about. You'll never receive the Holy Spirit by just keeping a bunch of rules, just by kind of marching in step with the rules. Okay, it's, it's, the law can't give somebody the Holy Spirit. Jesus does. 
Galatians 4 and verse 4 says uh, that in the fullness of time, Jesus redeemed those who were under the law and has sent forth the Spirit whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That sounds like something worth shouting about, right? Titus 2 and verse 13 says that Jesus has redeemed us from every lawless deed so he could purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, that's really something worth shouting about. I mean, I like the idea of being one of God's own special people. That's pretty cool. First uh, Peter 1 and verse 18 says that Jesus has redeemed us from our aimless conduct. In other words, our empty, purposeless, futile lifestyles that we're living. That's definitely worth shouting about. How many of you feel like God's given you a purpose? He's given you a reason for living. Amen. That's a wonderful thing. We're not just working Monday through Friday and then, then just enjoying the weekend and then going back to work. I mean, so many people, they're, they're alive, but they're not really living. They don't have purpose in their life. And Jesus redeemed us from that kind of a life. Revelation 5 and verse 9 says that Jesus has redeemed us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and has made us to be kings and priests to our God and that we shall reign on the earth. Wow, what a promise. This redemption is a very big deal. He's redeemed us so that he, we, he can fulfill a purpose in us, that we would reign with him, that we would be kings and priests for God. Amen. And so these are good things to shout about. Now, not only are we redeemed slaves of sin who now belong to God, but the Bible also portrays the church as being the Lord's house, okay? And so that's kind of more what I want to focus on. Um, the idea is that he purchased us so that he would have a dwelling place on the earth, now, we know, you know, the tabernacle of Moses, the temple of Solomon, these were types, they were shadows of the church. They, what God, God didn't really want just a building to live in where everybody had to come to the building. He wanted to live in a, a human temple, a living temple, so that the temple could go out into the world. It's not the world that's supposed to come to us, it's us that are supposed to go into the world. And so, um, like many of you, um, there came a time where I went to all the trouble of purchasing a house so that my family would have a place to live. And um, I want you to know something. Along with my wife, I chose the house. Well, let me put it this way. I chose the house with her approval. And, but the point is, the house didn't choose us, right? We chose the house. Uh-oh. I'm clicking the button accidentally. That's not good. Also, I paid a pretty steep price to obtain that house. Uh, the house did not pay me to live in it. Uh, this means that I own the house. The house does not own me. And... Uh, I have certain responsibilities toward my house. Well, stop that. It's misbehaving. I probably messed up the slide there. I'll probably just keep doing that for a couple of minutes. Don't pay any attention. Now, my, I, in my house, if something breaks, guess who's responsible for fixing it? I can tell you this. It's not my wife. 
She's responsible for reporting it to me, and then I have to make sure it gets fixed. And um, if there's something the house needs, then I'm the one who is responsible for providing it. Uh, I make the decisions for the house. The house does not make the decisions for me. Why? Because I'm the owner, and it's just the house. Right, and, and when I first moved into my house, my first priority was to fix up the inside of the house. I'm just going to leave that. You all know what a house looks like. <clears throat> um, it it's, wasn't that I was unconcerned about the outside of the house. It's just that the inside came first because the inside is where I, as the owner, would be living. Okay, so I see the inside all the time. My neighbors don't necessarily see the inside of my house, unless I invite them in, but I see it. That's where I live. And so my first concern was for the part of the house that I would be seeing as the occupant. And I decided what color to paint the walls, again, with my wife's agreement, what pictures I would hang up, what curtains I would have, where the furniture would go, all of that. I did all of that because it was my house. My neighbors didn't make these decisions. My friends didn't. My extended family members didn't. I made it because it was my house. Now, the Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's another way of saying the Lord looks at the interior. So let me ask you again, who owns you? Who decides what your interior man is going to look like? Who determines what your attitudes are going to be. Are you determining that, or is the owner of the house determining that? Who de decides what your desires are going to be, or what your hopes and dreams are going to be? These are all aspects of the inner man. How about your motives? Who decides your motives in any situation, or what you're going to think about, or what your opinions are going to be? Is it you that decides all this, or is it the owner? Is it you, or is it the occupant of the house? Who determines what your heartbeat's going to be, what's important to you, what your values are, what your passions are, what your view toward right and wrong is, good and evil, truth and error? Who is it that determines what your insides look like? Who are your insides decorated to please? Are they, there, are they decorated to please you or the one who owns you? I mean, see, this is where it really becomes real. I mean, we may not really think about it that way. We may indulge all kinds of ungodly thoughts because it's kind of pleasurable, but it's, it's not up to you to decorate your inner man it's, it belongs to God. After I began to make some progress getting the inside of my house fixed up, I, I went to work on the outside. I mean, because that's the part of the house everybody else sees. And I noticed that maybe the door needed painting or the shutters needed replacing or the flower beds needed weeding or the grass needed mowing. Now, some people don't care very much about what the outside looks like. They don't care what other people see. They're only concerned about what they see. And uh, I want you to know something, though. That is not how God feels about it. 
Okay, he cares very much about the outside. God expects us to glorify him in our body, that's the outside, and in our spirit, that's the inside, which are his. He owns both the inside and the outside. I didn't just buy the inside of my house. I bought the outside too. And he expects us to cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh, that's the outside, and the spirit, that's the inside. And, and we do that because they both belong to God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I bought my house, I didn't pay only for the inside. I bought the outside too. And I'm aware that if someone drives by my house and they see the grass hasn't been cut for two months and the, the door's not painted and the flower beds are full of weeds and the shutters are falling off, they're probably going to conclude that the inside is pretty much a mess too. I mean, don't we generally think that way? What we, we see a nice, neat, well-kept yard. We figure the inside of the house is probably pretty well-kept up too. Most people, it's not universal, but most people, the outside is a pretty good reflection of the inside. Most people will judge the inside of my house by what they see on the outside. Now, some might say that's not fair. That's not fair. Um, well, you know what? It may not be fair, but even God recognizes that this is the way it is. And that's why when he redeemed you, he didn't just redeem your heart, your inner man, but he also redeemed your body, which means, which is the means by which you express your inner man in an outward way. And so we have to be concerned not only with who decides what will be on the inside, but who decides what will be on the outside. In other words, we glorify God both inwardly and outwardly. So, who's making the decisions about your outward man? What God called the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. You know, sometimes people will quote that verse and they'll say, you know, well, God sees my heart. Man sees the outward appearance, but God sees my heart. It doesn't really matter what man sees. God sees my heart. As though that's some kind of like a justification, but that's, you're exactly missing the point. God cares about what man sees because he knows the outside is going to be a reflection of the inside. Amen. And so who's making the decisions about your outer man? what God, call, God calls the outward appearance, what man sees. Who determines what words come out of your mouth? You know, David was so concerned about what words he allowed to come out of his mouth that in one, one place in the Psalms he said, I will put a muzzle over my mouth. You ever read that? It's, it's right there. That's the word in the English translation, a muzzle, like muzzling a dog. He was determined not to sin with his mouth. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. Who determines what words come out of your mouth? Who determines how you interact with other people? Who determines how you treat your spouse or your children or your parents or your friends or your fellow students or your coworkers or your fellow believers? Who determines how you dress? 
Who determines what kind of clothes you wear, how you adorn yourself, what you do with your hair? These are all of concern to God. Who determines what you do for a living, how you spend your money, what you do with your money, when you come to church, whether or not you worship the Lord? Who decides these things? Is it you or is it the owner of the house? Who was that we were talking about today? And they said, the Lord told me something. And uh, I said to you, well, that wasn't the Lord talking. <laughs> I forget what that was. You know, but it, it's, we, we are really good at justifying our decisions. And, you know, well, the Lord understands. You know, well, wait a minute. That's like a private saying to his, his commanding officer in the army, I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do, and I, I, I know that you understand. It doesn't work that way. How many have been in the military? It doesn't work that way, does it? You obey orders, right? You don't get the right of, of refusal unless you want to be court-martialed and thrown out. So these are important questions. You know, do you decide all these things for yourself, or do you allow the one who redeemed you, the one who purchased you with his own blood, the one who owns you, do you allow him to decide? Because who, after all is said and done, really does own you? Is it the one who purchased you, or is it you? And, uh, and I mean this in not in a theological sense, but in a practical sense, in the way you live your life. Does the way you live your life reflect your owner, who the, the values of the one that owns you? If you've been born again and you profess to believe in Jesus Christ and to be one of his children, then you have to acknowledge that you are not your own. You've been bought at a price. You are the property of another and if you really believe that you belong to God and that he has ownership rights over you, then you are obligated to allow him to reign over every area of your life. Now, some of you, I'm just going to pause here a second. How many of you have maybe even just started on one of these books? You, okay, a couple of you. If... You won't have to read very long before you realize I'm just as big about inward holiness as I am outward holiness. And a lot of times there's mostly a focus on the outward. But, you know, Jesus was also concerned about the inward. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He said, you look really good on the outside, but your inside is cruddy, right? We need to pay just as much attention. I've known plenty of quote-unquote, holy people that didn't think twice about telling a lie that would sit and not worship God. I mean, this, these are just as much holiness issues as uh, the length of your skirts, ladies, just as much. And so I'm going to continually bring that out. I think we're finally getting to Hebrews chapter 3 because, you know, failing to actually live out the reality that Jesus owns you is really a denial of the faith. It's you're professing to believe one thing, but you're not actually living what you're professing. And the truth is, if we don't live it, we don't really believe it, regardless of what we may say we believe. 
Okay, the proof is in how you live. Now, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant. Notice it's a capital H, his house. It's talking about God's house. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Whose house we are. We are Jesus' house. Amen. If you haven't bought any of these books yet, um, there's a shorter book called Jesus Bought a House. That's the title that's out there. And if you don't want to go through all of these, you can get that one. It has a lot of good stuff in it too. Um, We are God's house, and he dwells in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. When when he washed away your sins in baptism and you filled you with the Holy Spirit, uh, that, that was God coming to dwell in you. You were part of his house. And according to this passage, Jesus is the head over this house. And, and that's because it's his house. It's because he owns it. He bought it with his own blood. Back when my girls lived at home, uh, sometimes they would want to bring things in the house that ain't coming in my house. They, they somehow thought it was their house and that they could put whatever poster they wanted up on the wall of their bedroom or they could play whatever kind of music they wanted to in their bedroom. They, they thought it was their house. They had it all wrong. It was my house. And there were some things they weren't bringing in. When they grow up, they can bring whatever they want in their house with their husband's permission, but there were some things they just weren't going to bring into my house. And there's some things Jesus just doesn't want in his house. Let me show you what the Lord says about his house. Psalms 93, this is just beautiful. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. Now, we're his house. Is that not right? We are his house. And what, what is to adorn us? And do you have more adornments inside your house or outside your house? You know, most of us have more on the inside. And so this is important. The word adorns means to, the literal meaning of it is to beautify or to make pleasant. You know, we, uh, you know, you move into a house. When we moved in our current house, it was brand new. We walked in. All the walls were white, and there was nothing hanging up. There's no furniture, and it was kind of boring. It was kind of monotonous. It was up to us to beautify it, to put pictures on the wall and furniture out. And, and my wife loves flowers, and so she filled the house with flowers. And, and we did all kinds of things to uh, put all kinds of adornments in to beautify our house. And you see, um, God says, you know what? You know what makes my house beautiful? This is God talking. You know what makes my house beautiful? Holiness. Holiness is what beautifies my house. And that's because he considers holiness to be a thing of beauty. 
And he wants us to see it exactly the same way. He doesn't want us to see it as just some set of rules or standards or just something we grudgingly have to go along with if we're going to be part of this church. He wants us to see it as a thing of beauty. King Jehoshaphat saw it this way. It says in uh, 2 Chronicles 20 that um, he said, it says, when he had consulted with the people, King Jehoshaphat, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. Wow. Do we think of holiness as something beautiful, something that beautifies us? Do you praise the beauty of holiness? I think you do in a large part of this church. I'm not trying to criticize or say you don't. Look at the songs we just sang. Obviously, the theme of both of them were holiness. We were praising the beauty of holiness. We should esteem holiness. Whatever holiness means, we'll talk more about that, but whatever it is that it means, we should esteem it as a beautiful thing. Amen. We are the bride of Christ. The Bible says that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus will present us to himself a glorious church which has no spot or wrinkle but is holy and without blemish. If you want to be part of that bride, you have to be holy. Holiness is what makes us a beautiful bride to Jesus. And so just as a beautiful woman can have great power over a man, don't underestimate the power our holiness gives us with the Lord. We were talking about that earlier today, that churches that really just compromise on holiness and eventually kind of move away from a lot of our teachings, you go in there and there's a superficiality about it. There's the depth in the worship. It's just not there. And he mentioned that, and I've experienced exactly the same thing. And it concerns me greatly because if we don't have the power of God moving, if God's not hearing our prayers the way a husband would respond to a, a wife that he sees as the most beautiful creature on earth, you know, then we're just kind of going through the motions. There's nothing going to be happening in our churches. Psalms 29 and verse 2 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Amen. So from God's perspective, there's nothing more attractive, nothing more glorious, nothing more beautiful than an assembly of holy people worshiping him with pure hearts and clean hands. Amen. And so we need to pray as David did. Let the words of my mouth, that has to do with the outer man, and the meditation of my heart, that has to do with the inner man, let them be acceptable in your sight. Because you know what? He sees them both. I see the inside, but I go outdoors and I see the outside too. God sees them both. So um, let me just kind of uh, go back over something here. God, God's owns us actually in two different ways. He owns us because he made us. In the beginning, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. <clears throat> man became a living being, okay? God made us. Uh, that was Adam. 
for concerning the rest of us, David says in Psalms 139, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So he, he made all of us. He owns us because he made us. And, and that's, that's important. Um, I have stuff in my house that I made. Okay, I own it because I made it. Now, I can give it away, but it's mine because I made it. Genesis 3, we see that man, the first man, sells himself to sin, and, and then God redeems him back to himself. The Bible says, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the coverings provided by the animals that died represent the covering of the blood of Jesus, who washed away our sins in his own blood, who purchased us. Okay, and so we see the idea of redemption taking place here in the third chapter of the Bible. And when God allowed Adam to continue to live after he had sinned, in a sense, Adam was being born again. He was giving, being given another chance. He was be, beginning a second chance, given a second chance to live right. But this time it was not only as the one who had been made by God, but was also as the one who had been redeemed by God. Okay, hopefully Adam learned some things through that experience. He learned about the wonder of redemption. And so in the same way, if you're born again, God owns you first because he made you, but he owns you also because after you sinned, he redeemed you back to himself with his own blood. In Genesis 4, uh, Adam and his family belonged to God, and apparently the primary way they were to demonstrate this was by offering uh, animal sacrifices. We know that uh, Abel brought his sacrifice and God accepted it, but his brother Cain uh, was not accepted. Uh, there are lots of reasons probably why there was no blood in the vegetables that Cain brought. Uh, they were the result of his own hard labor. Uh, and so uh, uh, God did not accept Cain's sacrifice, but he accepted Abel's. And Cain is an example of a man who belonged to God but refused to live in accord with that reality. And look what happened. And we see the very first family is completely dysfunctional after just four chapters in the Bible. And the consequence of this was that God banished Cain from his presence. You know, God saved us for a purpose. And uh, just like the fig tree that wasn't producing, he, he cursed it because it wasn't fulfilling its purpose. And it's the same thing. If we don't fulfill our purpose, if we live like Cain, and, and even though we belong to God, we won't live like we belong to God, then we could find ourselves banished from his presence. So we must live as the people of God and the property of God because we belong to him. And um, we should commit ourselves to that reality. And that's really what holiness is all about. Amen. Now, how am I doing with time, brother? Another 15 minutes? That's good? Okay. Okay. All right. Praise the Lord. So, obviously, I'm here to talk about holiness. Holiness is a very big idea. The term holy is used many, many times in the Bible. Uh, in fact, it's used more than any other word to describe God. People say God is love, but it says God is holy a lot more than it says God is love. In fact, he's called the Holy One, you know, 40-some times, I think, just in the book of Isaiah. 
And so the God of the Bible, the one that we know is the one true and living God, he is holy. And so we need to be careful not to think of holiness in terms of a dress code or a set of standards. That's so important. Holiness has to do with the attributes of the eternal God. Now, what I want to do here um, this evening is show you how holiness relates to salvation. Because holiness, many times I think apostolic people kind of get the two ideas mixed up a little bit. Sometimes people feel like I have to be holy to be saved. Or they think that um, some people think that somebody has to actually become more holy in order to get saved, you know. Um, but the old thing is, get the, you know, you get the fish in the boat and then you scale it, right? So I want to just talk about that a little bit. Um, in the story of the children of uh, Israel leaving Egypt, um, there were certain things they had to do in order to get out of Egypt, right? And I'm sure you all know the story. They first had to apply the blood of the Passover lamb over their doorposts and lentils. And then they had to pass through the waters of the Red Sea, and they had to receive the law on Mount Sinai. And so uh, after they had slain their lambs and crossed the sea and received the law, it was only then that God said, and let them build me a sanctuary. The word sanctuary means a holy place that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it, and there I will meet with you. Just so. I'm going to show you the pattern. I'm going to show you what, uh, how I want it adorned and, and decorated, and, and you're to do it exactly the way I tell you to, and that's then will become the place where we can relate, we can have a relationship, we can meet with one another. So under the New Testament plan of salvation, we follow a very, uh, well, an absolutely exactly the same pattern, only instead of shedding the blood of a lamb, we, we kind of shed our own blood in a, in a manner of speaking by dying to sin through repentance, right? We start with repentance. Then instead of passing through the waters of the Red Sea, we pass through the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And instead of receiving the law on tablets of stone, we receive it on, uh, into our hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit. I will put my law inside of you, he says. And so then after we're born again, after we're born again, then God says, now make me a sanctuary. Make me a holy place where I can dwell with you. And so the holy place that God wants his people to build today is not a tabernacle that's made of fabric and animal skins. It's a human tabernacle that's built on the principles of holiness. And that's what forms the place where God will meet with us. He's a holy God. And he wants to meet in a holy place. We call it a sanctuary. I know we call this room a sanctuary. We kind of went, we just, I mentioned, we just built a new building. And we kind of went through a big discussion. What are we going to call the, the place we gather in? The worship center? Uh, the auditorium? 
the sanctuary, and we actually put it to a, a vote. We didn't tell anybody how anybody else voted, but we put it to a vote of the congregation, and and they unanimous, almost unanimously chose sanctuary. They wanted to call it the sanctuary, and uh, you know because it's everybody understands that. But you know what? It's really not this room or this building. Really, we're the sanctuary. We're the holy place, right? And so uh, if we weren't in here, this particular place wouldn't really have any more spiritual power or benefit than inside the public's grocery store. Some people might think that's blasphemy, but, I mean, this is a building, you know? One day we'll fly out of here and just leave this for the Antichrist, right? And and he can do with what he wants, but we're, we're the sanctuary, we're the ones building a holy place for God to meet with us. And so Peter says in First uh, Peter 1.15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That sort of takes it all, all the mystery out of it, huh? And I know the King James Version says, be holy in all your conversation. But in, in Old English, conversation meant more than just how you talk to each other. It, it really means the whole, your whole manner of living. And that's what he's saying here. You should be holy in your entire manner of living. And, and in, in other words, it includes everything. Why? Why should we be holy? Because he is holy. Amen. There can be no question that God requires every believer to live a life of holiness. And the only question is, what does that life consist of? Okay, so I'm not going to try to answer all that tonight, but we will get into it more specifically tomorrow and Saturday. But um, I want to show you some of the lessons that we can learn from Israel's tabernacle that might kind of help us understand uh, our pursuit of holiness and how it, the relationship between holiness and salvation. Okay, so the first thing that I derive from the story of the tabernacle is that it was God's idea. All right, this isn't something Moses came up with. This was something God came to Moses and said, okay, now let them build me a sanctuary. So it was his idea. He initiated it. The second thing is holiness establishes a place where God and man can come together. That's what the Lord said. That's where I'll meet with you. The third thing is holiness follows salvation. God didn't say a word about uh, a tabernacle uh, in Egypt. It was only after they received the law on Mount Sinai, which is us receiving the Holy Ghost. Then, immediately after that, he says, now let them build me a tabernacle, right? Uh, Number four, holiness is our responsibility. Who is going to build the sanctuary? Who is going to build the tabernacle? It was the people of Israel. God didn't do it. The people did it. Holiness is our responsibility. God will not do it without our participation. That's why the Bible says that we must pursue holiness. The King James Bible says, follow 
after holiness, I think. But the really, the word is, it's a very strong, intense word. Pursue it. Like you're, like you're a, a, a football player with the ball pursuing a touchdown. I mean, you're putting everything into it. And so it's our responsibility. We can't just think that God's just going to kind of manufacture it all on his own without our participation. Um, the fifth thing is that holiness has been designed by God. It has one pattern that applies to everyone, and so we have to build according to his pattern. Okay? The same, the same elements of holiness apply to everybody. There's not some that are just for the preachers. It's everybody has the same elements that make up what we call holiness. God said, I'm going to give you the pattern. And he has given us a pattern for holiness. And then the last thing is holiness is constructed of free will offerings, right? Whatever we do for God must be freely and willingly offered to him. The, the, Moses said, oh, just, I just want free will offerings. If, if somebody has to give it grudgingly, he didn't want it. Everything that made that tabernacle was given freely, willingly by the people. And that's the only thing that has value to God. And if you are being coerced into doing a certain thing, uh, it's not holiness. You may do it, but it's not holiness unless it's freely offered. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying if you're doing something and you think, well, I feel like I've just, I've had to do this. Um, don't stop doing it if it's the right thing, but change your attitude about it and just decide, you know what, I'm going to do this freely unto the Lord. So the tabernacle shows us that holiness is not equal to salvation. In other words, we're not saved by being holy any more than the Israelites were saved from Egypt by building a tabernacle. We're saved through the new birth experience, okay? And a person who was born again five minutes ago is, in, from God's perspective, he's just as holy as the Apostle Peter was on the day he died. He may not appear very holy. He may be still doing a whole lot of unholy things, but he can still be saved. In other words, he, holiness is developed. It's a process. It's a pursuit. We're to perfect it, which means it doesn't happen instantaneously, overnight. And so, and people today are coming to God from a long ways off. It's not like when I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid in the 50s, my mother wore a skirt or a dress almost all the time. I, it was unusual for me to see a woman wearing a pair of pants. But, and so that was in my mind and as the way it was appropriate for a woman to dress. And so it wasn't a big struggle for me. But today, it's really, really different. And people grow up in this world and they've, they, these, this is all so radically new to people. Some of our values, people, um, you know, people have almost no concept of what is sin today. They have to learn these things. And who's going to teach them except us? They ain't going to learn it in high school, right? It's got to come from the church. And so um, even if a person is maybe not acting in a very holy way and still doing some things that aren't right, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It's not that they have to get to a certain place after they're born again before they're saved. However, um, Paul also spoke about what he called the things that accompany salvation. 
And that's in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9, the things that accompany salvation. Now, I think about it like this. Um, okay, my luggage accompanied me here from Pennsylvania. All right, now, my luggage is not me. And the real purpose of me coming was not uh, that I would have my luggage here, right? But it was something that was very important uh, that I have with me. And, and, and maybe a better example is when an army goes to war. I mean, if you send an army to fight an enemy, you better equip them. You better give them, uh, you know, uh, guns and, and armor and uh, provide for their food. In other words, there's a lot of things that need to accompany that army if they're going to succeed against their enemy. And so here's the thing. We have an enemy that even though we're saved, he's trying to keep us from ever making it into glory. And so there are certain things that need to accompany our salvation. They are not our salvation, but they accompany our salvation, and they're not really optional things. We need them if we're going to make it, okay? And so I want to give you uh, just a list here, and I'm going to end with this, but these are the the column on the left is the things that pertain to salvation, and on the right are things that accompany salvation. And I think it's really important that we be able to clearly distinguish between the two. So in order to be saved, you're going to have to hear the gospel. You're going to have to repent. You're going to have to submit yourself to God. You're going to have to believe. You have to have faith. You're going to have to be willing to confess your sins. You're going to have to be baptized. You're going to have to receive the Holy Ghost. Okay, I, I believe we all agree that these things are essential elements of salvation. Okay, is everybody good with that? But then there's all kinds of other things like prayer and praise. Now, you're not saved because you pray, but can you really stay saved very long if you don't? You're going to be disconnected from the Savior. There's plenty of people that pray, but they're not saved. Goodness, Muslims pray five times a day. doesn't mean they're saved. So you can't, like, feel like, I've got to pray to be saved. No, but you gotta, you got to pray. That's how you connect with the Savior, okay? And, and praise, praise is similar. Uh, reading the Bible, studying the Bible. You're not saved because you know the Scriptures. Goodness, Jesus said they, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they that testify of me, but you won't come to me. These guys were Bible students and scholars, but they weren't saved. Uh, but can we be saved if we don't know even what the Bible says? Uh, church attendance. You're not saved because you come to church here. In fact, there's probably been plenty of people that have showed up here for services that aren't saved. I mean, let's hope so. Then you, you're never going to win anybody if no sinners ever come here. But they're not saved because they're here, but it puts them in a position, in a place to hear and to believe and to be baptized. Um, so coming to church is very important. We need to be a part of a church, but that's not what saves us. It accompanies salvation. Uh, Christian character is vitally important. Holy living is on this list. Holiness is important, but it's not equal to salvation. Stewardship and giving and then ministering to other people. These are the things that accompany salvation. They're not, we don't save ourselves by doing these things, 
but we protect our salvation, right? Paul says in Hebrews chapter 2, I think, uh, that we should be careful that we don't neglect so great a salvation. You know, you can neglect things around your house and they'll start to fall apart. Neglect your car. Don't change the oil and see how long your car lasts, right? So there are things that accompany salvation. We need to be careful we have these things in our life, but we don't confuse them with salvation. Does that make sense? Praise the Lord. Without all those things in the first column, I, don't, I just don't think you can be saved. But if you're missing anything in the second column, it's going to put your salvation at risk. All right? We don't believe once saved, always saved. If you want to believe that, you have to find a good Baptist church, right? Amen. It's a daily thing. We are being saved. But just like a child can be very loved by his parents, but he can rebel, he can move out of the house, he can say, I don't want anything to do with you. And there's not a whole lot the parents can do, even though they may love that child greatly. We shouldn't mistake the fact that God loves us for the fact that we can just somehow automatically go to heaven without putting any effort into it. Praise the Lord. I'm going to quit here. I just wonder if anybody has a question uh, tonight. And I'm, at the end of each one, I'm going to try to end up uh, early enough that we can entertain a few questions if anybody has any. So maybe you can be thinking about it for tomorrow night. Um, one of my goals here is not just to help you guys maybe get some insights on holiness, maybe get a little deeper understanding of some things, but to equip you to be able to talk about it with other people. You know, why should, why should um, people have to only hear about it from the pulpit? You know, lots of times people, new people, they'll ask questions, you know. It's not unusual, you know. How come all the ladies here have long hair? You know, things like that. And we don't need to, we shouldn't have to just say, well, go talk to the pastor about that. I mean, if we're really equipped and knowledgeable and know how to talk about it, we can give a good, we don't have to give long explanation, but we can give good answers, and we should be able to. Amen? Anybody have a question? All right. Well, I'm going to turn this back over to Pastor Harrelson.